Welcome to the World Wilder Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and I'll shortly be introducing this week's guest, John Aykroyd. But before I do that, I'll just give a little update of some of my own activities in the last few weeks. I've just been up to the Highlands of Scotland and stayed with my good friends up there, Thomas and Leslie Kilbride, who are crofters, have been up there for many years um, and really have established a, a wonderful croft that was kind of was a bit like a small holding but with a bit more of an emphasis on um, livestock, keeping livestock. And so my kids got to milk goats for the first time, which was pretty cool. We experienced getting ticks and slightly panicking because we're not completely well versed with um, all of the law around ticks and Lyme's disease and so on. So that, that was uh, that was a bit of a challenge up there. And also um, the challenge of, of midges. I did a short wild food walk um, for Thomas and Leslie with some um, locals. And it was quite an experience because we, we had to have midge veils all over our faces so no one could see each other's faces and we were surrounded by a swarm of midges. Um, it was quite the most challenging circumstance I've ever done a wild food walk in, I think. And, and for some reason it transpired that this was really the peak of daytime midges for our entire visit. So it was quite funny because I like to share some thoughts about how when we enter into a wild landscape and start eating stuff, we're um, participating in a, a flow of molecules into our bodies whereby we become part of the substance of that landscape. It's, it's always a thought I like to explore. Um, but of course, in, in, in this instance, the very first thing I had to say was, well, today the, uh, the flow of molecules is going the other way. We are the wild food standing in the middle of this field being consumed by midges. Um, and our molecules are being now taken out of the landscape through these midges to be um, uh, a part of the, the landscape in Apple Cross. It's a bit of a, bit of a reversal of the usual situation. But, uh, I thought that was quite funny. Um, and while I was there, I did some experimentation with um, a, a couple of things. There was a, uh, one of the larger rack species there, rack being um, probably the most prolific seaweed on the coast, uh, rocky coasts. Um, and I took some of the the um, the uh, fleshy tips, which are basically the reproductive part of the seaweed, um, of a species I've not worked with before, and they're, they're quite sort of big and fat, and we were using those as beans. Well, I should say we were using them as, as if they were beans, just lightly steamed. And also there's a, there's a thing called rack siphon weed, which is an epiphyte. That means something that grows on a seaweed that isn't the seaweed itself. It could be pretty much any kind of organism, but in this case it's another seaweed, a, a very fine sort of reddish brown hairy seaweed, um, rack siphon weed as I say, and it has a very distinct aroma of truffles and, and flavour, um, but that was really brought out when I took some of it and put it in a jar and sealed the jar up, and it was pretty much like having a jar of truffles, you open it and this, this wonderful aroma hits you. Um, and then the other thing is we're driving around Scotland, we saw just masses and masses of Rose Bay Willow Herb, um, which um, I've become more conscious of this year. I've, I've known for a long time from an old medical herbalist book I had uh, years ago that it's a plant that can really help in the, in the case of people suffering from prostate cancer. Um, but my friend um, Torben from the Lake District made me some, well brought me some tea when he visited a while back which was sort of lovingly fermented and rolled and dried 
and it really is a very delicious tea made from the leaves of the Rose Bay Willow Herb. I gather that the, the flowers also were, were part of a more traditional form of that tea. Uh, but Monica Wilde, um, who's the previous guest on the podcast and, and a good friend, uh, was, was telling me that she's seen some amazing results in her herbal medicine practice with people uh, finding dramatic improvements after drinking a tea made from from the uh, Rosebay Willow Herb. But apparently it doesn't need to be the fermented one, it can just be a, a more simply dried version. But that stuff is just all over the place, driving up through Scotland. And the same with Meadowsweet. It's extraordinary to me that, that both of those plants aren't part of the culture um, of Scotland because they are so evidently uh, a part of, of the landscape. I've, I've never seen so much of either of the two of them. Everywhere you drive, they're, they're there on the roadsides and, and further out into, into the landscape. So yeah, those are, those are them, some sort of plant highlights of my journey. I also found some porcini uh, or seps in the Lake District on the way up, which was pretty, pretty exciting. And then, and then the very rare Satan's Belit also grown there on the, on the limestone. We, we've, um, well, I've yet to encounter that in, in Kent, but, but there it was. It's, um, it's apparently toxic, but, but I suspect um, uh, not so toxic when cooked. So the, the, um, the inedible beliefs tend to be things that, that, that are okay when you cook them. But anyway, it's not something you'd, you'd think to harvest because it's actually... Um, I'm not sure if it's on the red data list in England. That's, that's a list of rare plants or on the, the really rare list schedule eight of the wildlife and countryside act where where it's illegal to even pick or or touch them but anyway very exciting to see that species so without further ado i'm going to introduce john so john is an old friend of mine years ago when i was writing the forager handbook um i reached out as i say to quite a lot of um eminent british botanists because um being a member of the botanical society of the british isles uh, they they have lists of what's known as referees, the people that you would send samples to if you had a plant in a particular family that, that you were wanting to identify. Now, John was the referee for two different plant families, for the Dock family, uh, Polygonaceae, and for the Goosefoot family, Kenopidaceae. So you can tell from that the sphere of uh, the breadth of his expertise that he's, that he's actually the, uh, the authority on both of those two plant families. And I, I wrote an email to him and, and got a very friendly response and subsequently we had uh, quite an active correspondence and also a lot of time spent on the phone um, just talking about plant matters and he uh, helped me with several of the plant entries in, in, my, in the book um, where he gave me some extra information about various different species that he was familiar with. And then years later we had um, a legal dispute around the harvesting of sea kale and he, he appeared as an expert witness for us uh, sharing his expert opinion as to the uh, benign effects of the gathering of wild plants and sea kale in particular because um, he's, he's actually an expert in shingle vegetation and indeed has one of the plants of the shingle named after him it's a it's a uh, coastal version of, of, of curled dock which is a a popular edible wild plant actually in uh, many parts of the world and John otherwise is uh, is someone with several books to his name uh, he's written an, an encyclopedia of, of, of wild plants he's contributed to the flora Europa quite substantially which was like a, an atlas of, of um, flora in in Europe as the name suggests and he also has written many of the botanical uh, the entries for the new atlas of the British flora British and Irish flora um, and 
and he does a lot of work in Romania, which we'll we'll hear a lot about in the podcast. But um, what I think he doesn't mention is that he's he's um, he's worked a lot with uh, the Prince of Wales there, and I think he takes um, Prince Charles out for a for a foraging walk uh, or a botanical walk at, at least once a year. Um, so it's good to know that the future King of England is keyed into um, issues around sustainability and wild plants, and indeed of foraging. But apparently, he's a great enthusiast for foraging. So without further ado, we'll we'll get on to the um, to the chat, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. John, it's great to welcome you to our headquarters here in Kent. We've we've known each other for years, but yes. it's the first time we've managed to see your habitat, habitat as it yeah. were. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so obviously we've had lots of conversations over the years, um, but I guess we keep coming back to this shared interest we have about just people making use of plants. Um, yes, I mean, to my mind, that should be the absolute basis of conservation, that um, people get what get the most out of habitats, uh, the, sort of, the sort of ecological resources, and biodiversity, which is uh, which is the genetic resources. And it, this is what we should be trying to protect. And the more that we can integrate what's known as nature conservation with a more general approach to use of the planet, um, the better. Uh, it worries me there's been too much emphasis on nature reserves and bureaucracy when we should be getting conservation out there to everybody. And I think things like foraging are, are one of the ways people can interrelate to the natural environment and see how you know, its, its riches can be put to good use. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things it'd be great to um, have you talk about is, is um, just how your professional interest developed with regard to... Um, you know, plants actually as, as part of human culture? Well, it was uh, a mixture of professional interests and just and lifestyle. Mm. Um, in the, the work I've done professionally on plant taxonomy, um, I was always very keen, for example, in Flora Europea when I was working on that project. There's this big five volume um, book on the plants of Europe, a sort of compendium. Mm. And if there was an economic use, I'd always do my best to, to get that into the little description at the end, you know, when you list the, the ecology and all the extra things about the plant. I'd always try and put in something about uses and that sort of thing. But it's all started, I suppose, when I, as a student, I just used to like going out looking for things. And I suppose, like everybody, I was excited by Richard Maybe's Food for Free in mm. 1973. Three, I think that came out and later on I read books by John Seymour but it was just when I was doing my PhD which was on uh, Shingle Beach weeds especially docks I always used to bring stuff back from the coast you know a bundle of samphire or, or whatever um, to eat at, at, back in Cambridge and um, so I, I was always rather interested in that sort of thing and then I suppose I, I've done a lot of work as a botanist in Greece and there, of course, in the spring, the whole countryside is, is dotted with people gathering wild plants of one sort or another. It's a major part of their culture. And I suppose it's 1980, I was there with um, a colleague from Cambridge, and we were, um, well, we were doing some work on endemic plants, but we were staying in a small um, town, Caristos, on the bottom end of the island of Euboea, which is just, or Evia, just north of Athens. And we noticed ladies having these big piles of greens and we were rather annoyed because the ladies 
there was a whole ta noisy table of ladies and they, they left most of them. And when we asked the proprietor if we could have some, he said, oh, it's all finished. So we thought from then on we'd make a real effort to hunt these things out. And ever since then, I've, in Greece, I've gone out of my way to not only eat these things, but to watch people gathering them and, and talk to them about what they are and what they call them, this sort of thing. And it's how one, it's wonderful that. Um, so you know, what have those ladies been doing? What was oh, they, they were just they, they've been they've been offered actually amaranthus. It had been boiled and then it had lemon juice and olive oil over it, which is the standard Greek what they mm. call horta. And horta became a bit of an obsession that uh, I, would, I would go around looking for looking for different types of horta, and in different districts and seasons, they use different species. It's, it's a wonderful use for natural resource. And the nice thing about those summer water is they're all, that was uh, a species of amaranthus, which is a weed in the tomato patches. So you're getting a double crop. And instead of just taking weeds to the rubbish tip or burning them, you are eating them. Well, that seems a fantastic thing. I suppose I carry this on on my allotment to this day. So what do you eat from your allotment that grows up as a so-called weed? Oh, well, south thistle, which actually you people at Forager got me onto originally. Ah. <laughs> and corn salad, which I know people grow as a crop, but it, it's it's a major weed around our village and on my allotment, and I gather that right through the winter. That's a, but people mostly refer to that as um, lamb's lettuce. Oh, that's right. In, yes, in, lamb's in, lettuce in, is a cor corn salad. What do they call it in France? That's mash, mash. I think, yes. yes, and they're really keen on it in France. Yeah, um, and there are lots of different named varieties which you can buy seed of. But it's it's a good little plant, and if it came in the summer, you'd say. Um, no, don't, don't um, bother with that. It's, it's, it's nothing. But in the winter, it's a really, really nice thing to have. And it also looks good in salads, these little rosettes. Well, I don't know if you'd have read the entry in my book about um, lamb's lettuce, but it, it was one of our formative experiences um, when we were learning the plants. Mm. Um, because we had uh, Antonio Calucio's Calucio Goes Wild book. And that, for me, was like bite-sized chunks of... The edible flora. In other words, there were thirty plants in there for us to try and discover, and we thought, well, that's that's doable. We can work with thirty plants, and um, we we first of all did easy ones like nettles and wild garlic and, and wild sorrel. But we we came to lamb's lettuce and weren't having any joy, and we spent most of a, a week um, in in um, Cornwall, or at least every time we went out, we were scouring everywhere mm -hmm. trying to find this this lamb's lettuce. Um, and on the day before, no, the morning that we, the morning that we were um, due to go, I said to Ali, I can't believe we've not succeeded in our quest. I'm going to have one more try. So I went outside of um, Ali's parents' house um, and just walked a few yards up the road, and there was this plant growing from the base of a wall, and um, it didn't look like the pictures in in Carluccio's book because it was fully in flower, but I recognised it from our, our plant book, and I thought, there it is, there it is. And it seemed such a wonderful parable of, of foraging, like that what you need is right under your nose. And in fact, some of it was not only in flower, but it had gone to seed. On the way out of Cornwall, we drove through a number of villages and, and kept spotting it. So I, I said, let's let's pull over and, and harvest some of the seed. We can, we can, we've drawn a blank in Kent, let's scatter the seeds around in our neighbourhood. And, and and so that we have it next year. So we got back very late, but the following morning, I got out this bag of, of lamb's lettuce plants with, with seed, 
and just started scattering them at the base of the walls around the little housing estate we were on. Um, and um, I got to the top of the hill where the neighbour was in her garden and, and she said, oh, hello, Miles, what are you up to? So I told her the lamb's lettuce story and said, I'm, I'm trying to get it to grow here. She said, let me have a look at that. And I showed it to her a bit closer. She said, follow me. Led me into her back garden. It was a forest of lamb's lettuce. Brilliant. And I, and I felt elated and also deeply embarrassed because mm. we'd gone on a quest all the way down yes, to Cornwall to yeah. find something that was mm. right there under mm. our noses. Mm. But it is actually, it's, it's a, a local plant in the wild and there are at least, apart from the common lamb's lettuce, there's at least three other species that occur and they're all really quite rare. Um, I've been working for the last 30 years on the flora of, um, well, the promontories and islands of West Cork and we were always thrilled to find um, lamb's lettuce wherever we were you know, botanising. And there was one particular one, um, the beaked, I think it's called the beaked lamb's lettuce, that Oleg Polunin, who was my old botany teacher in fact, had found um, on the islands in about 1950. And finally one plant turned up in the, um, oh, the, the late 90s. So, right, it, so it, 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 it's still, still there. just hanging on. I think it sits in the seed bank. But, um, you know, modern agriculture isn't kind to arable weeds. It's funny, that's lovely that you mentioned the seed bank. Um, I actually did a, a, a brief mention to, the, to that idea in the introduction to last week's podcast. It is, a, it is a fascinating thing that seeds of certain species are able to just sit and sit and wait for the right opportunity to come it's quite it's quite heartening isn't it really because oh, yes. it makes you realize you know if we if we mess everything up yeah they can hang on for a, a certain amount of time yeah. and make a comeback mm. and so and some you know potentially i mean charlock is the classic one that can yeah. last for over a century as yeah. can curl dock which is what i was mainly doing my phd on and well of course you've introduced with the idea of using charlock seed as a substitute for mustard seed it works, doesn't it? It's, it does. It's fabulous, yeah, yeah. and it's brilliant that such an injurious plant has this other use. Because this, is, I suppose, is a lot of my research over the years has been on weeds, and the idea that you know weeds, most weeds are related to crop plants, and most crop plants have a weedy race, and they're necessary because um, well, they're a source of genetic variation, and mm. they hybridise with crops. This is what worried me so much when they were starting to work on oilseed rape and. Uh, genetically modifying it because I knew that the genes would would get into the weed populations and people said oh, no 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 they do and the French proved this right. it's it's frightening what uh, you can do by messing around with the environment but I, in the end weeds and plants of waysides so-called ruderals they are just a huge resource that we mm. all ought to be tapping into well in many respects, I mean, obviously, we we think about just sitting down and tucking into them for our breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But mm. you're you're actually saying, in terms of um, agriculture, that the the genetic resources. Um, yeah, they're crop relatives. Yeah, Anything yeah. that's a crop relative, even if it's a nasty weed, and weeds have many wonderful characteristics, like the ability to survive, to you know exploit difficult habitats, and and just reproduce themselves. Um, if we lost the, it's rather like um, medicine, where if you got rid of a particular virus, you might be doing some good, but you ought to keep a bit in reserve because you never know when you might be able to splice it with something else. Or mm, mm. So um, you mentioned one of your 
teachers at university, I'm not sure if it was the same person, but I, I remember you telling me before that one of your supervisors um, had some very interesting theories and, and some evidence to back it up regarding some of our wild plants having been utilised in the past as, as food plants and that there's evidence of that that still remains in the wild population. That's right, yeah, well, it, uh, it was David Briggs, who uh, was my supervisor at Cambridge, and he was, well, a, a good naturalist, really, and, and, and very widely read. He's, he's, still, he's, he's still alive and a and, um, uh, great chap, and still writing. But I remember him just suggesting to me that, because um, he saw me reading Richard Maybe's book, he said, well, because so many wild populations of plants have probably at some stage been used by people and there's bound to be some sort of conscious or unconscious selection. And we had another guy, it was a mar marvellous team in the old days in Cambridge um, before it all got a bit too high tech. And then we had the late Peter Sell who um, he knew more about British and European plants than anyone I've ever known. And um, he wasn't one of the editors of Flora European, but he made a huge contribution. But he was always pointing out to me sort of... Um, distinct variants of common plants mm. with perhaps slightly larger flowers and this sort of thing and he, he was the sort of guy who could then find an old name because a lot of this variation that uh, people talk about now had been spotted by botanists in the 18th and 19th centuries and um, he, he, he fished out a lot of names for these varieties and if they have a name, people are more likely to record them and look for them. I think that's quite right. important. That's all. Right. I've, also, that's my job as a taxonomist. I'm a taxonomist with an int interest in intraspecific variation, and uh, I just love um, finding interesting or different populations of plants, especially weeds, and I, I do, if I can, like to give them a name. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think there are still quite a few subspecies out there that that are not recognised just because people haven't paid close enough attention. Yeah, I think there's a lot, yeah, there's still a lot to be found yeah. and found out. Um, it is amazing, though, when you when you make a botanical discovery, you can usually find some obscure person found it. Who also noticed you. it mm. earlier on. Yeah. I remember getting very excited when I found a, new, a grass new to Ireland, and <laughs> I fished around and found a specimen collected by somebody about 1840. Fantastic. Very good botanist who, who'd been ignored. And later on, I um, found something out. I'm trying to think what it was. The, another thing this the same man had found, and, and people had ignored him. I suspect his problem was he was a Quaker, and that meant he felt somewhat... Non-conformist. Yeah. You see, if he'd been Church of Ireland, it would have been, been fine. <laughs> or, or even a Catholic. Right. But uh, no, he, was, he was a very, very great botanist.
So can we can we dig a bit deeper into this stuff that your supervisor and his colleague dug up? I mean, mm. I, I think I'm right in saying you mentioned black bindweed in the past. Is that is that one? I suppose it is, yes, because that that was much eaten in the, in the past. The yeah. seeds. I think one of some of these bog burials had black bindweed. Yeah. Inside them. Yeah. And of course, if you look at it, it's it's pretty much like um, buckwheat. Buckwheat. Yeah, same family. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, the seeds are the same shape and everything, aren't they? So yes. I, I, I can't imagine they behave mm. very much differently. Yeah. Well, that one does have. There is a variety called Variety Alata. I think it has winged fruits, and that is scattered around. And I, I'm, I'm sure that has, that was selected because if it was found in bog burials, it was also eaten quite widely, and it, you know, if people could. Could select for a slightly larger seed. That'd be brilliant. Yeah. Another one. Fine enough. And is that that subspecies does have a larger seed. Oh, it does. That's yeah. that's really yeah. the only difference. Larger fruit yeah. and seed. Yeah. And I suppose the whole thing's a little bit more bigger and vigorous. But um, there's another cornfield weed, spergularia. Corn spurry. Corn spurry. Sorry. Yes, that's me. Uh, there is a, a, a kind of race of that that has much much bigger seeds. Yeah, well, that's another very likely candidate. Very likely. Yeah. Yes. And I've seen that in in um, some little fields in the west of Ireland. What I, one one of the reasons I'm interested in Southwest Ireland is that um, there's a lot of relic plants there mm. that hang on in, in in you know field corners and rocky ground, sort of yeah. relics of former cultivation. And they're telling a story of a relationship between people and those plants Absolutely. as part of the relationship, the bigger yep. relationship of people in those landscapes. That's right. It's extraordinary. Mm. And of course, a lot, a lot of them were medicinal plants as yeah. well. I think coming back to um, uh, lamb's lettuce, corn salad, that has a medicinal effect, I presume, because it's it's valerianella. It's in, like in the valerian, valerian family. Yeah. So it's probably got some of the drugs in it that valerian has, and that's been widely used as a herbal medicine. Mm. Mm. Or in fact, mainstream. I mean, all detective novels in the old days, people would take valerian drops before somebody came and did them in that's in the right. night. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it makes me think this this um, idea of being able to read history from landscapes, it, it reminds me of the late, great Oliver Rackham, who, yeah. who always used to say, you know, so many people, what they're writing are just bibliographic echoes because yes. they're just repeating what they found in somebody yeah. else's text. And he said, and often people are talking about a phenomenon or, or, or a particular location, which yes. if anybody had just bothered to put their boots on mm. and gone down there and had a look, they'd realise that this couldn't possibly be true. Yes. There are physical aspects of that place which, which, mm. which tell a completely different story. Yeah. Well, well, my um, own PhD, there were some of the, the weeds I was studying, you'd have particularly distinctive populations, and I correlated this with episodes of disturbance in the past. Mm. And we didn't have the techniques, but these days they can go into the you know the the genes and the chromosomes in a way that we never could and i think you could find out an awful lot genetic fingerprinting or what have you mm. there's bound to be a persistent effect especially if things are are in this great sweet seed bank because if a, a field hasn't been plowed for a hundred years and then docks or charlock come up they're going to probably be genetically a bit different to the ones that are around today different selection pressures right yeah. it's like oliver rackham's ancient trees some of them would have grown up during the Mesolithic or whatever. Fantastic, and, yeah. Or, or, or their parents had. Mm. So there'd be totally different selection pressures. No, as Oliver says, nature, you know, it's, it's a great book or series, or library. And biodiversity, uh, the emphasis tends to be on, on 
habitats, but I, th I think species and interspecific variants are just so important. And I, I, my main worry about the modern world, even ahead of climate change, I feel that it is this loss of all sorts of diversity in crops and in wild plants, and it will not do us any good in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, when I give talks about the importance of eating wild plants, I, I kind of point out the, um, the sort of chemical diversity of not just, well, you know, the richness, really, of when you consider the richness of any one individual plant and then that all gets stacked up together with, with the enormous number of wild plants that we have and that considered together is, is an incredible bank of, of, of chemistry mm. and, and here are we, these highly uh, sophisticated organisms um, which if we were to make a list of all the chemicals that, that, that are essential to life it, it's, it's not this tiny little list of a handful of vitamins protein and carbs we, we, I think we're only we're only just now realizing that I think you know I think we'll realize that increasingly so as you, as you say as we as we impoverish our, our sort of chemical library as it were well that's the funny thing is that the sort of modern reductionist science re reduces things down to okay a single compound yeah. in a drug and so on mm. but um, but it's a package the whole thing that's so important there are probably variants that one drug in, in the leaf yeah, and, and and the complex interactions between the the other things in that plant because yes, we, we we won't have co-evolved with those plants on the basis of one chemical. We'll have we'll have we'll have co-evolved with that plant on the basis of finding our way able to metabolize or respond well yeah. to to that whole diversity just within that one plant, mm. which is not to even mention the 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 way the interactions between you know if you eat nettles and and plantain yes. in the same meal well that's quite likely to happen so mm. you know who knows that that's not a beneficial effect and of course the cliche is that a lot of modern food doesn't taste very interesting the, you know tomatoes are bigger but they don't taste as good and that's it you've bred out all the good chemicals you've you bred out all the complexity mm, the compl just, yeah just, mm. just, just, just yes because we you know we simplify it because we want one thing yeah and um so somebody just opened my eyes years ago to the difference between the the industrial food system and and just wild ecology and and they just said well you know in the industrial food system you're you're producing in any given place you get you're producing one benefit for one species whether it's a pile of wheat or a pile of lettuces or whatever that's just one thing for for, for one species whereas a an ecosystem is providing multiple benefits for multiple species and then when you start considering the the interdependence that that we actually have, even if we're blind to it now, but that we actually do depend, uh, in some sense, on, on all of these other species. That yes. every time we reduce that complexity, we're reducing the benefits. So mm -hmm. it's, it's 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 like a, it. You know, if you're the most stupid and selfish individual alive, you ought to be able to see that it's madness to yeah. to to narrow down. Yeah. The, the uh, biodiversity by even one species, let alone... Well, it worries me that the conservation establishment is too keen on rare species. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I, in the last years I've been much involved with wildflower meadows. And, um, for example, working in Romania, which I do a lot, um, my remaining colleagues get, get excited about communities of rare species, lots of rare species together. Whereas I, I'm often as excited, if there's a field with 20 species, uh, 
many of them have disappeared in the rest of Europe. There's one field I know, for example, which has corncrakes in it. It's only got a very limited floor, 20 or 30 species. And it shows that if you keep the, the, the landscape intact, um, and the, the structure, you've got long grass, short grass, bits of wet in the corner. Um, and that's what corncrakes like, is it? That's what they like, yes. Just for anybody, could you just say what corncrakes are? Corncrakes, cracks, cracks. It's the bird that, um, it, it makes a rasping sound. Um, and it used to be a distinctive feature of British and Irish life. And you still get them on the continent. Um, I, I can even demonstrate the noise. It makes a noise... That sounds like crake crake, doesn't it? It is. is it? That's the Latin name, crake okay. crakes. Um, and you, well, the first time I heard it in Poland, I thought, crumbs, I know what that is. And now I hear them quite regularly. But the the, the a lot of the sort of conservation establishments trying to save them by more or less keeping the farmers off their fields. And of course, the, these things have evolved alongside um, farming. And if you've got good traditional farming or some traditional practices retained you, you you can keep these animals and you don't have to have uh, a bad bad farming you you can manage in such a way that you can good farming and and the concrete so what's what's the farming regime that would that would end up with the, the corncrake friendly field well the best thing is to have a, a lot of different uh, fields the modern trend for great prairies doesn't help it. It needs um, diversity. And if you've got multiple land management, um, one field gets cut one week, another gets cut another, that sort of thing. But if everything's cut all at the same time, um, the, the, the chicks, for example, have got nowhere to run. And I think a lot of the management, I'm digressing here, <laughs> but uh, a lot of the management uh, regimes that have been promoted, say, in Romania, have come from northern Europe, and it's a different kettle of fish in Romania. The birds have always got somewhere to go, whereas in Britain they haven't, it's too small. You know, habitat diversity is sort of analogous to genetic diversity. We just need an awful lot of, we need an awful lot of everything, and anything is useful. And... I've always particularly, I've always found common plants interesting because they vary often, you know, between habitats. And many common plants are the ones that we eat. And it's, it's really good that you, you know, by foraging, one has found a use for plants that otherwise might be discarded. And then there's I mean, another reason for all that. All nature is productive. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I suppose it, but that begs the question about the, the way that the, the law is structured around... Um, conservation it sort of singles out certain bits and says you know these are really valuable and important but the trouble and and i'm not denying it you know obviously there's a rare habitat we ought to make sure that it doesn't get encroached upon mm -hmm. in a way that causes the ecology to break down yeah. so we lose it but at the same time it that presupposes that that we can just wreck the ecology everywhere else and, yeah, absolutely. and, yes. and, and that it's okay to have areas that are mm. just completely mm. covered in tarmac and yeah. that somebody's going to go around and spray around the edges yeah. if a plant dares mm. to try and mm. uh, you know yeah. behave like it's still the planet earth and not mm. just this place well, that, where nothing can live because yeah. that, that's why I, 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 I've sort of I find nature reserves too much too constricting we need to make the whole of our landscape more um hospitable for plants and animals well, and I, I mean I think our, you know the case you and I were involved in where with uh, collecting 
plants on the shingle beach at Dungeness that English nature was so keen to protect, but they, they weren't really seeing the whole picture. There are some bits of Dungeness you don't want anyone to ever go into them, perhaps, but um, a lot of it is it's what we call a ruderal habitat. It's being disturbed. There's all sorts of garden plants growing there. And it seems to me it's actually a rather productive garden where anyone could gather stuff and not actually do any harm. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, we, we won't go too far into that because I could talk about it for two hours. I know, sleep, yes, but, no. <laughs> but I'll just briefly mention for anyone listening, we, we, we had a legal um, case with uh, Natural England that actually lasted four years where, where they were... Um, alleging we were causing serious harm to the environment just by picking the leaves of the sea kale. And John came in, uh, waded in as our expert witness to, to give his opinion as a, as a, a, a sort of world expert on um, shingle vegetation and uh, also a specialist in several of the species that grow on that shingle vegetation, such as the, uh, the uh, curl dock, which I believe you your your uh, PhD is based on Kerndock. Yes, but that's got your name on it, hasn't it? Oh, uh, yes, well, yes, the the, vera- the coastal variety is actually it has my name after because it, yes. you discovered it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, John John is a a, a very authoritative mm. um, person on this on the on the topic of both the habitat and the plants. Mm. Said that oh, no, this is nonsense. There's no harm being done at all by by the gathering. But unfortunately. Um, I think we ran up against just a mindset that this yes. this is like fortress conservation. It's just like let's keep the humans out, let's mm-hmm. let the wild mm-hmm. stuff grow. But in in the particular case of the sea kale, um, another renowned botanist, UK botanist David Pearman, also waded in. Yes. He didn't appear in person, but he he put stuff down in writing. Yeah. He said that actually sea kale has flourished after massive storm events where yeah. it gets completely smashed up and broken, mm-hmm. spread up the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas you know the suggestion that Naturalina were making was that merely walking on the on the shingle there was going to cause some devastating mm-hmm. outcome, and they never were able to provide a shred of evidence no, for no. that, not from any of the literature. No. But but and, and just it's because a plant it was more common now than it was yeah. twenty or thirty years ago. Yeah, a lot more common. So certainly you know it's not under threat, and and it's and it's it, neither is it vulnerable. I mean it's so so robust. You're talking about a plant with sort of you know several. Um, lateral roots the thickness of a man's arm growing out three to five meters from the i mean just you know just try and make that plant die it's covered in a ton of shingle you know i mean that's that's what that's what that's what david pierman said in the end i thought his punchline was great he said was anyone actually seen a sea kale plant die as a result of being harvested i thought well that that settles it yes but uh but yes, you felt that English nature and their allies were rather out of touch with the natural world. Well, for example, they're, 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 the lady down down there um, who was initiated this kind of legal thing um, was under the illusion that sea kale had a taproot, yes. which it doesn't. I mean, she she gave evidence said sea kale has a large taproot. I mean, it's just it was just um, well, I don't know where she got that from. I think she just made it up. I'm sure none of the books say it's got a taproot. Mm. At any rate, I I think. Um, my issue with the, the with the nature reserve thing is that it, it does presuppose you know keeping people out is the answer, although then again they're not keeping people out because this specialist group of people called conservationists can come in and and do whatever they like because they they deem it in their wisdom that the that, that, that their intervention and and disturbance which is basically what they're doing they're not leaving it alone this is mm. you know the, the idea of rewilding is quite a separate idea where you just yes. leave it alone mm. nature reserves aren't that they come in and do all kinds of management oh, regimes yes. but the weird thing is 
most of those regimes are basically historical reenactment. They're, they're, they're putting animals on there or cutting this back or burning that or whatever as a way of recreating the conditions that existed when people were actively managing the land for economic reasons to create food or other resources. So, um, I, I, but, but I, mean, I suppose the good news with that is it's only, it's only one more small step uh, in another direction to say, well, how could we actively manage this for, for the resources now in a way that's, that's uh, uh, you know, an innovation now? Let's think about what's on this land. Yeah. How could we be getting more hogweed seeds off it or, or more um, some kind of sedge that we found a use for the fibre mm. and, and, and just experiment with, well, how... Because what they're trying to do is create a mosaic of, of uh, species, aren't they, that, yes. that existed then, but... Why not go in there and you know use a bit of this, use a bit of that, and see what brand new mosaic emerges? Yes, I, yeah. I find that tremendously exciting idea. And of course, in the early days of conservation, they did tend to put fences around things. Um, and in Africa, for example, it's caused huge troubles because local people had always hunted and whatever and gathered all sorts of things in the forests, food, medicine, and they were suddenly told they couldn't go in there. And you know, life wasn't very well, the, the the nature reserves suffered because the locals were hostile and would then go in and poach. And in recent years, they've come around the idea that people are part of it and they must be allowed to go in and do what they've always done. And the Spanish set up a wonderful se series of micro-reserves. These were tiny nature reserves for plants. You know, they had their big national parks and nature reserves, and this trapped quite a lot of the, you know, rare species. But for one or two things, might grow in just a few rock outcrops. And so you'd make that a, a micro-reserve. And the idea was that the landowner would then have a one-page, that's all, uh, management plan. And basically it would say, do what you've always been doing. Because that's presumably why the plants had always survived. And this is something we're trying to push, for example, in Romania. Other countries in Eastern Europe, like uh, I think Slovenia, have also... Um, done micro reserves and it's, it's, a, it's a jolly good system. Well, isn't isn't it the isn't it the case in Romania that, that there's vast areas that are um, what we would class as sites of special scientific interest yes. in effect, mm. and yet the 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 key factor in maintaining the, the the habitat and the diversity of that habitat is traditional farming methods, Absolutely. which are still going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, the project I work with, Fundatia Adept, what we're trying to do is keep those methods, but bring them into the 21st century. For example, modern mowers, um, solar panels in sheep folds up on the mountain, this sort of thing. Um, even then an app on your phone that when you look, look on the phone, it'll tell you, oh, today you've got to send your grant application in, this sort of thing. And if, if we can keep the farmers there, so... The important thing is to conserve farming families and farming communities, and they will then protect nature, and nature will help them get a better yield. I, I just, I'm just sort of butting, but I'm just imagining because I've I've studied some of the um, the notification documents for um, sites of special scientific interest in mm. England, and they they said this 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 species is absolutely crucial. You must not interfere with this, and so you know um, even to pick it at all, you could be arrested. You know, because that's that's one of the key notified features. Mm. Which, by the way, CCAD is not one of those um, by a long shot. Um, but I just love the idea of a notification document notifying 
farmers that farm like that yes as one of the key species that that you just can't mess with <laughs> you, you cannot interfere with this guy <laughs> leave him alone he's there on the document yeah that's right no yeah, i mean the the farmers have saved the saved the diversity and we have to accept there won't be so many of these small farmers in future but where they can make a profit by for example uh, producing high quality goods you know like a really good cheese and ham and this sort of thing um you know they'll be able to stay on the land and the nice thing about um uh, that landscape as well is that uh, people are still collecting wild fruits certain wild leaves this sort of thing so foraging is actually built into the system which yeah. is ra- rather nice well we've been out there and, and and seen some of that i mean i mean i remember um um, but there was some frustration. We had, we had a tour guide that, that was taking us to some amazing places. We saw an old charcoal burning yeah, place. Oh yes, there was a a, 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 a a potter who had a kiln that had been there for five hundred years. The mm. same kiln and mm. various things like this. But um, we kept asking him to pull over so that we could talk to people that that were doing various things. Um, and and I remember we we pulled over to ask some people that were harvesting um, walnut leaves. It was just, just an armful of these walnut leaves. And it turns out they put it in their airing cupboard to make the clothes smell nice, and it, and it, it acts like mothballs. But he was, he was reluctant to keep doing this, and eventually I realised it was because he was embarrassed that he was taking our money and the people we were talking to um, weren't getting any money. He felt it was unfair. Yeah. Um, but but we, we made this suggestion, just to pick up on what you were saying, about if, if, if farmers could... Um, it, I don't know if you'd call it diversifying, but you know, to have these value-added products that could increase yeah. their income, right. I guess it's a form of diversification. Mm. But we realised that there were, I mean, and for example, I, I really uh, pushed myself um, forward with with some local people that were harvesting hay. They were they were scything, and then they came back to to make a haystack. And they thought I was mad at first, but they eventually let me help them make the haystack, which is I've got it on video. It's fascinating. Um, but with all these things of, of us being interested in in the nitty gritty of what people were doing, it seems to me that there is a whole other area of basically ecotourism oh, yes. that could boost the income of these small farmers. Mm. Because I think there would be thousands of people from from places like England where we've mm. lost these farming methods, or people from all yes. over the world that that would mm. that would that would pay good money mm. just to just to go down there and see what happens and even even lend a hand it's 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 an idea we've had since then it was about 10 years ago that we went um it seems to me that that ecotourism could also be um and and if you think about it all of these things are like when when you when when juniper's in trouble they come up with a a biodiversity action action plan species recovery plan when are we going to see that we need a biodiversity action plan species recovery plan for traditional farmers yes yeah because then it would be Natural England mm. supporting the planning application for some guy to, to start farming yes. in an extraordinary traditional way mm. and get the whole support. It's just it's bizarre mm. that at mm. the moment it's yeah. actually the opposite, that somebody like us that's trying to introduce that way of thinking is, is seen as, as being running up against the, yes. the objectives. You know? it's, and, and I think, you know, without sort of to take the sting out of the, or the sense of confrontation out of it, I think it's, I think it's just that, People haven't quite got there yet in their thinking. I, I feel sure that, yes. that, that the future is definitely going to be um, 
much more um, collaborative between mm. conservation. It's just they're starting from one end to say, stop it getting wiped out. So yes. it was humans that wiped it out. So we've got to keep the humans out. But they haven't just done the next stage of thinking and saying, no, it wasn't humans per se. Mm. It was industrial humans. Yes. Yeah. It was people that just come in and clear the ground and dump something on it. Mm. It was industrial farming or a housing development or a factory yeah. or shingle extraction or something like that. It, but the but the but the folk that worked in this complex integrated way interacting with the landscape to produce all the multiple benefits yeah. of a traditional farm that's a different kind of human yeah that's right or a yeah, forager that's, that's a different kind of human mm-hmm. the, those guys actually could be part of your plan yeah. conservationists so um mm. yeah no they do conservation as a way of protecting their own livelihoods Ah, that's right. <laughs> mm. yeah. I mean, the, the great thing about traditional farming is that the land is protected. I mean, it, it, all, all the things that governments keep going on about, like carbon and what have you, uh, far, old farm grassland has a fantastic amount. It's a great store of carbon as much as woodland. But you see, at the moment, moment our governments say, let's plant lots and lots of trees, save the planet. Why don't we have a nice mix of trees and grassland? And the grass that would have a lot, lot of other species as well. Fantastic, and and also the thing that always, I mean, to bring up Oliver Rackham again. <laughs> Oliver used to say, "What a what a ridiculously pointless exercise it is to plant trees." Didn't Absolutely, that was the, the, the tree <laughs> planting craze. Oliver was, used to get so agitated about that. It's very funny. It's just a, it's just a, it's a mm. it's a money making scheme slash job creation scheme. You know, yeah. you used to have that in the back in the eighties when there were mm. lots of unemployed. They'd, they they got got. Um, 18 year olds to just do completely pointless things yes. as a part of a job creation scheme because mm. because um because the point is that trees plant themselves if you just leave a this is leave it. a piece of land alone mm. it'll be covered in trees in yeah. 20 years time well i think we need a sort of mosaic i think the experiment at nep in sussex where they've rewilded yeah it's great that it's not really the future of farming but if we could have that in a mosaic with well-farmed landscapes I'd just like to see NEP being um, reconceived to see how much wild food could we get off that landscape. Absolutely, yes. And I noticed uh, there was something in the paper the other day about the, the Great Fen project, which I think is rather good, where they're expanding Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire to flood large areas oh, of fantastic. farmland. And somebody's actually said, why don't we also grow things like bulrushes, which are useful, and maybe you know some wild some grains that like their feet in water and that sort of thing well of course glyceria flutans or the floating sweet grass is a, is a great example of that um was uh, i mean we did a podcast the other week with with um uh Wukash Wuchai from uh from poland and he was telling us a story of that i mean he was he was a bit slightly um um putting a different spin on it because it was it was very much sort of a luxury food and food of the rich yes. but 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 still you can you can get a fair bit of grain from mm. from an area and um mm. and and then and then the uh, the bulrushes i mean that's quite compelling the figures of how much starch you can get yes. from an area of land or an area of water um, yeah. with with a bulrush on it unfortunately they were mainly interested in biomass for fuel oh dear <laughs> there's always a that's prop. such a crude way of it's, looking at it isn't yeah. it i know yes no one they well they've not got anyone in to tell them i've, I've offered about i've offered i've i've met some of the people that, that that are working on um 
Actually, perhaps it wasn't that project, but they're, they're looking at doing something on the North Kent marshes, and, mm. and um, I think I'd probably just need to knock a bit more loudly on the door, mm. but like, mm. there's a great book, I forget the author's name, and I'm hoping to have him on the podcast, called The Lost Fens, and he, he tells the story of, of, I mean, it goes right back to the Romans, people trying yeah, to yeah. ruin that habitat, but... Um, you know, there, there were there were a whole people group that lived on there and fished and fowled and, and mm-hmm. made use of the plants, um, and it was it was creating livelihoods for a lot of people. Yeah. It was just yet another um, uh, wicked, um, you know, g- goal scored for the for the rich and powerful because it, 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 the idea was let's drain it and, and give it to private landowners because of course they'll they'll make it more productive. Actually, it just meant that more money would go in. The rich man's sack, and and these poor people would be uh, turfed off and and yeah, and, and impoverished. But like it's it's um, I mean those the, you know there are landscapes like that. The the oh, yeah. the the, the, uh, the the landscapes in in America that still exist with um, massively productive areas of wild rice, for example, yeah, which is still right. harvested mm-hmm. in the traditional manner by mm-hmm. quite a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me the whole our whole coast is a huge production zone. I mean, you think of a lot of the wild foods one likes, salt marshes, sand dunes, mm. shingle beaches. Why mm. just have them sitting there as a sort of aesthetic attraction, you know? Why not Why not use the stuff? Well, exactly. Then, then people would think of it as even more. It, it's added value. That's the, that is the, the it, buzzword. It is added value. When you look mm. at the multiple benefits, just the one species, us, mm. of people going out and doing that. Like people, people are realising, okay, nutritional benefits from mm. wild foods... Just being in green spaces in the first yes. place, but the kind of sense of meaning that's that's created, the sense of community cohesion of people got together and said, okay, you know, let's all go and harvest this and make some pickles, yes. or yeah. um, or let's sit down and work out how it is we're going to manage this resource for for, yeah. for all the people that live in this village because one person can't take it all, or we shouldn't mm. harvest it, you know, all that, all that beautiful stuff that would get us back to the old days where people mm. managed common resources. In common, I, I mean, I, one of the most exciting things for me is to realise that the, the, the um, at least under English law, it really does seem as if the wild plants still are, in, in legal terms, that they are a common good. They're yes. not, they're not under private ownership, um, in spite of some slightly ambiguous stuff in the mm. Theft Act. It, it does, it does look like that the legal structure supports the idea that this doesn't belong to anyone. Yeah. And therefore belongs to everyone. I, th- I think that's just a marvellous starting point potentially yeah. for how we could begin to uh, mm. to work together if it became more of a uh, you know a collective thing that we all thought, okay, we live in this village. What have we got here? You know, yeah, well, some some wild things. It's about, for example, bilberries. So when I was a little boy, if you're going to the West Country, a lot of the hotels have bilberry pie, and presumably somebody. Probably somebody without much money or a young person in a village was was earning money in the summer collecting these things. Yeah, and a major resource. And uh, I'm a great fan of that much neglected uh, writer Mary Webb in the early part of the 20th century. And one of her books, she has a wonderful description of Shrewsbury Market with big piles of bilberries oozing onto Amazing. the floor. And uh, and then she also in another book she describes how. The whole of her little community, or uh, the, uh, the community she describes in the book, would go up onto the Long Mind or one of the Shropshire Hills, and they'd have a whole day or two days just collecting bilberries. And, and actually, until recently in Ireland, they had a th- uh, the Irish bilberry. I think it's in Ireland they call it frocken. Um, I've been pronouncing that wrong. 
I remember you emailed me to tell me that years ago. I yeah. forgot you to pronounce it over the phone. I've been saying Frauen, so it's Frauen. Oh, no, it's probably is Frauen, actually. Is I, I'm, I'm not very good on, on Irish pronunciation. Okay. But, uh, but maybe maybe somebody could let us know that it's, yeah. it's an authority Frauen. on this matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably different in Scotland. But, I mean, the, the, it was a day when people went out and collected these things. And It's Frauen or Frauen Sunday, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, that's yes, that's absolutely right. amazing. It, about now, late yeah. July, yeah, I think. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one of the problems, of course, in England, certainly now, is or Britain, is uh, the vast numbers of sheep that yep. are eating them That's all. done for a lot of these populations, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There has to be... It's interesting. Uh, our uplands are being eaten by sheep rather than like the Romanian ones are. I, I'm a great believer in, in lamb and the use of sheep to manage marginal landscapes, but there are just too many of them in Europe at the moment, I think. Yeah. Headage payments. Anyway, that's enough that's another matter. The, the other one the other one is is, is the wild cranberries. It's it's, it's oh, yes. there, there used to be a lot of places. There's places in Norfolk where there was a big mm. harvest. Mm. In I Surrey, think. I think. Some yeah. of the Surrey Heath they had them. So, you know, again, that must be a case of drainage that's, that's yeah. happened. That's now, they have got a bit rare. I wouldn't want to see people picking those in lowland England, but I would have thought in parts of Scotland there must still be quite a lot. I mean, I must say I'm a bit baffled. I, 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 found, a, I found a site in, uh, in Northumberland, um, and uh, it took us two hours to pick a kiln jar for. I know. So I don't, I don't know how people did it, but you do hear stories about that as well, oh, great yes. carts with... So somebody must have got the hang of that somehow. Mm, mm. <laughs> but it, it does seem to be a very... Um, and they were amazing. They, they, I didn't know what to do with them, so I just left them. Yeah. And they were still good uh, a year and two months later. They they, they changed colour, but th- they've got something in them. I think it's benzoic acid or something that, that, that preserves them. <laughs> I imagine they taste a lot better than the commercial ones. Oh, of, they're fantastic. Of whom Mr Ocean Spray and his friends yeah. have a complete monopoly. Um, but yeah, we got some it's, like, it's like bilberries, the blueberry that you buy in waitroses. Just watered poor, down, poor yeah. vegetable, really, yeah. poor, yeah. poor fruit. Yeah. Well, it's like anything else; it's it's been cultivated for other reasons <laughs> yes. than flavour and nutrition, isn't it? Mm. Just going back to the reed mace, I found out um, recently from um, our friend Mark Lewis in in Arizona. He's telling me that the the pollen of the reed mace. Which is also a food, and yes. oh, great Native American, Americans Native American. Have, yeah, yes, cattails. Yeah, they call it cattails, don't they? You couldn't yeah. believe it when I said it. We, we called it reed mace. Was going, well, what do you call it that for? <laughs> but anyway, um, it, apparently it's got vitamin B twelve. Wow. So you know, vegans have this mm. perennial problem of of where do they get the vitamin B twelve yes. from? And most vegans are actually eating. B twelve synthesized in a lab that's then thrown in with some yeast, which for yeah. some reason people think that's the product of the yeast, but it isn't. It's it's synthetic, um, and uh, and yet it does seem like there are there are all these plant based sources of yeah. of B twelve, and then and then there's, there's there's starch in the roots. You can eat the the young flower things yeah, before the, they get get firm. They're like. Um, um, well, Mark was described as like uh, sweet corn. It's a bit like that. Mm. So, so there's and and then the young leaf bundles have a thing that tastes like uh, palm hearts. Yes. So here's here's a plant that, and then even yes, the uh, the seeds. That that's another Native American mm. thing. I've never done that actually, but you can you can harvest those cigar shaped seed heads, and then burn off the the fluff, and then you're left with these these seeds. So it's just and just every stage of that plant pretty much. Yeah. Is is useful. And that's just one of the many things that would grow on these uh, the marsh areas. So, yeah. I, I just love that idea that that if we could really establish the um, the use for the plants, 
and that of course uh, it uh, i mean perhaps there are big uh, mechanized ways of of making that happen but i much prefer the idea that we're told that we're moving into a, a, an era where people will simply work fewer hours because yes. the machines do it all. Well, we'll see. But if that's true, and suddenly we have all this time on our hands, it seems to be perfect because now we can start getting involved in producing our food again. And so there is time for people to faff around burning off the fluff from bulrush seeds and, and, and harvesting the pollen and all this sort of thing. Um, and then and then there we are. There's this, this rare species... Uh, Re re-established on the landscape, you know, the, the Homo foragericus or yes. whatever we call ourselves. Well, on the way here this morning, and I was saying how you don't see so many blackberry pickers these days. Yeah. That was a foraging activity everybody once did. Yeah. And now very few do it. It's so easy just to go into the supermarket and pick these things up. But, I mean, that's a lovely family activity. And it's it? something I remember doing. What a, what a wonderful thing. Yeah, with my grandparents and my parents. Mm. Just come home and... Uh, eat as many as you picked and yeah. your hands would be black and so would your mouth mm -hmm. and, and it costs nothing no. that's correct officer for Scottish National Heritage I think it was they, they turned up for this event we did talking about eat invasives with Japanese knotweed and, and so on um, and they they told me this um, gave us account of the reduction in biodiversity on farms um, and unusually it was because of the farmer not doing something um, rather than the fact that they were spraying everything or whatever um, and they were saying that because farmers were tidying up less, they had more nettle and more blackberry. And for, for this guy, because his whole focus is on biodiversity, that was an issue. Mm. Because they tend to kind of dominate a space and so there are fewer plants growing. But I mm. thought, well, what a fantastic byproduct of farmers being less busy tidying up everywhere. That there's actually more blackberries yeah. and, more, um, mm. and more nettles. I wonder if they've done the maths on nettles, though, because... Surely nettles uh, are such a, a a boost for for insect species that it probably discount the, uh, the the reduction in plant species. What do you think? Yeah, John? I don't know. Yes, yeah, certain species will be helped. I don't like to see too many nettles. There's too much coarse vegetation these days. But the general matter of tidiness. When I was asked after I gave a lecture in in Sibiu in Romania, and a lot of students and they said uh, what are the worst enemy what is the worst enemy of conservation i said well there are two enemies one is ignorance 
Right. And I think that, I was saying what we were saying earlier, things like foraging, you're getting to, out there to know plants and all that, and knowing your environment. And the other, of course, is just tidiness. Ah. And then the, the, these young girls went into a bit of a huddle. And then it turned out they said, we don't really have a word for tidiness in Romanian. <laughs> and my friend Nat, uh, there was a group of old Saxon, these are German settlers who've been there since the Middle Ages in some of the villages. And he turned to this group of Saxons and said, do you have any words for tidiness in your language? We have many words for tidiness. <laughs> <laughs> but they managed that landscape magnificently for 800 years. Yeah. So they, they, the tidiness didn't do too much harm. No, I, 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 there's always this urge, isn't there, if people see something. Like in our village, uh, I live in Wiltshire, and the cats are always mowing the verges. Even when they're covered in wildflowers and butterflies, they mow them. And they keep saying they've got no money. Well, why not let the verge save the money and produce a healthy, nice environment? I think, I think in Kent, they're, they're, they're becoming... Bit more enlightened, they're, they're allowing at least the stuff to reach a certain stage before they cut it back and, and so on. Too, mm. yes, you don't mind yeah. them cutting along the actual road and, and where there's a splay with the road coming in, but it's just that they, they just seem to come around every few weeks and just yeah. mow everything. And this time, they mowed when stuff well, all right, I know it had gone over, but I was hoping that lots of things like red clover and um, bulbous buttercup would set you know have lots of seed, yeah, exactly. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> getting there slowly, I've got them to protect a big patch of knapweed because it looked rather magnificent oh fantastic and funny enough road verges have been a lot recently in the press about them and i i think lincolnshire are having a particular um they're, they're sort of trying to boost the value of road verges and tell people how important they are and protect them it, it's partly because lincolnshire has been so intensively farmed that ver verges about all they've got left right. but nevertheless it's great to see um the council and the, the conservation people working together to protect to protect verges. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it needs to get back to just people in the area having that connection with their surroundings, so that yes. they 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 are involved in it and and mm. and care about it. Because you know, I think that the, the trouble is it's also um, so many steps removed from people's actual life. You yes. know, they, they can sit and watch. Um, spring watch or whatever, but it's it, there's a danger that all that stuff's just voyeurism because it, it doesn't connect to you know the route that we take to work in the morning as to yeah. what's going on there that would um, that would promote or otherwise um, the biodiversity and uh, I don't know what you think but I I personally think that that foraging is is one of the um, best tools for that simply because it makes you pay attention. It just makes you pay more attention. Oh, yes, you have to observe, and then you have to make sure you've identified your plant or fungus correctly. And you just see things in situ and, and realise that all these things have a value. And uh, In the old days, they'd have said, put there by the Lord to feed us. And I, oh, there's something in that philosophy. Well, it, it, yeah, it certainly does seem to me like a benign provision. I, I just mm. find it difficult to see it any other way. You know, mm. um, however you kind of feel like it's arrived at that place it's um it's, I mean, it's a pity in a sense that some some public parks don't have areas that have just been allowed to get a bit weedy where people would be encouraged to come in and well the know, trouble is more and more of those kind of spaces that they're, they're they're trying to ban it you know the royal parks have apparently banned foraging oh. wooden trusts yeah i mean not that they can there's no legal basis no, for no, this as far as no. i can see but they they keep sort of 
saying these things and, yeah. and at the very least it makes everybody feel very uncomfortable mm. um, if not having the desired effect of making people just not follow it it's, 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 but again it's um, it's just that mindset isn't it yeah. that, that hopefully uh, yeah. will dissolve in time mm-hmm. it's funny because people think about um, you know uh, actually getting out there and seeing it rather than on TV whatever um we we have become a nation of wires really like mm. cookery programs you, all these cookery programs yet quite often you go out to dinner at somebody's house and the food's dreadful we've <laughs> all been watching that i can't and they, and they say oh young yeah. people always on their phones yeah well the elder generation are always watching animal programs or um food programs and not not really you know doing things practically themselves and what is that about anyway food mm. on telly I mean, you can't smell it. You can't taste it. No. It's like it's like having um, a program about music with the sound turned down. That's right. Yes. Well, you could all you can just see is the guy's fingers moving. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Very, very odd. And 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 it, it as you say, it doesn't have the effect of um, of uh, empowering people to cook. No, I, I, you know, use nature or lose it. Really. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. It's fantastic <laughs> to have you, John. thank you for joining us for this week's worldwide podcast and as ever we invite you to leave reviews and rate us on whichever medium you're using to access this podcast and also do go to the homepage on the forager website it's just uh, forager.org.uk forward slash podcast if that's not normally where you reach us do go there because you'll see links to things relating to the podcast um, and also all the other episodes there with and, and the links relating to them. And also we just encourage you to uh, just be a, be an evangelist for the, um, the material that we're presenting here. If you're finding it helpful, interesting, inspiring, uh, any of those things, do spread the word. Maybe, um, you know, just send the link to some friends or talk about it. And uh, let's see if we can just get through to um, a wider audience to just spread uh, spread the you know the inspiration that we're um, that we're offering here you know that there's there is a way to live better there is a way to live um, more wholly and uh, as as more um, integ- with, with a, in a more integrated way with our surroundings um, and um, with other people all right that's it for this week's worldwide podcast. Mm-hmm.